Can someone be born in the wrong body? And does one's personhood exist outside their body? Do some people have male bodies yet female brains or vice versa? And do some people have female bodies but male souls? I mean, these are these are heavy questions that uh, that in some ways we don't have a lot of space to talk about. But today on the Page 2 Podcast, we're going to dive into the topics of sex, gender, gender incongruence, and the experience and identities that follow those topics. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome to the Page 2 Podcast. Uh, we're excited that you're joining us, and uh, I'm also really excited because for the first time on our podcast, we're welcoming in Jeff Jones, the senior pastor of Chase Oaks. And we just figured since these are such easy topics that we're going to do, you know, Jeff can give us a, a five-minute, you know, answer on everything, and then we can go home. Isn't that right, Jeff? That's right. Thanks for the hardball yeah. rather than the softball. Yeah. But, hey, I do want to thank you, Eric, as well as Greg, who's normally on this podcast for uh, for your vision for it, also your your expertise in doing has been super helpful for me as a leader, as a person, um, but also just for our church and for anybody listening. So it's a it's really cool to now be part of it on this side of it, not yeah. just as a listener, but. Uh, as as a person helping ask some questions. No, it's cool. It's just cool to be a part of a church and organization where nuance is not discouraged, but actually like encouraged and that there are spaces like this where we can have some really difficult conversations uh, of which this is possibly one of the most difficult conversations to have because it's just so, it's so hard to to get our heads wrapped around it about what is gender. And when we have a friend who uh, has an experience that that may not be our own experience, uh, or maybe it is, but of gender incongruence where things don't match up. That um, this is one of those conversations that requires a lot of nuance. And uh, and Jeff, just before we even jump into the discussion and and the special guests that we have, just for you personally, what 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 brought you into thinking about this, or what uh, what what is it about this topic that like hey we need to we actually need to spend some time wrestling with this as a community yeah you know we're we're called to we're we're here with a mission we're called to to love and and to reach people um many of whom have significant questions about their gender identity and some who've made conclusions about their gender identity as trans or whatever and our our job is to help understand and and love them and also from a pastoral perspective for those who our Jesus followers are open to that, who really want guidance in terms of what, what do I do? Or parents who say, man, what, what do I do? How do I help my child? Or, or teenagers just trying to be helpful with their friends. And um, this is a, a growing uh, topic um, in our culture uh, for whatever reason, more and more people identifying as transgender or some kind of gender incongruence that we'll talk about. And, uh, and therefore, I mean, it, it's just responsible um, and, and, and as we'll talk about, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about us. We're talking yeah. about our, our community, our church, our family, our friends, and how do we understand and love people the best we can and, and point people to what we believe is, is best, uh, from a biblical perspective as well. Yeah. Cause there's just been so many scenarios that seem like, and, I, and scenarios is the wrong word. It's almost like just people that we've met, um, either at the church or in the community. And it's hard to have guard uh, guardrails or it's hard to have a even a way to talk about this conversation if someone is experiencing something how to help them in their pursuit of Jesus how to help them uh, in just what to do with their experience and and so we really wanted to have a space where we could start to kind of dive into these waters uh, which can be a little tricky uh, and so we we were able to find a a great thinker kind of an expert uh, who's been Diving into this as well, I mean, he's been in a, in a lot of ways really involved in uh, conversations around loving LGBTQ people really, really well, uh, and written several books about that and done some different talks. And now he's really even shifting to focus a lot on the T, the transgender part of the conversation. That's Preston Sprinkle. Uh, Preston has a PhD in New Testament and early Judaism, and has been a college professor and New York Times bestselling author with books like A People to Be Loved. Um, and he currently serves as the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, uh, which is an organization that's aimed at helping Christians engage uh, questions about faith, sexuality, and gender. 
uh, with theological faithfulness and courageous love. And so, uh, Jeff, you and I uh, sat down to have a conversation with him where he phoned in, and uh, and it was a really fascinating one. And so uh, let's kick it over to that conversation, and afterwards uh, let's talk about it. Well, we're excited to welcome to the podcast uh, Preston Sprinkle, who's an author, a thinker, and leader of the Center for Faith. It's Center for Faith, Sexuality, and what? what, what Preston, what was the what was the total? Uh, ge- gender, faith, sexuality, and gender. Faith, yeah. sexuality, and gender. We're so excited to to have you joining Jeff and I as we kind of dive into those topics about sex, faith, gender, all the stuff that's in there, and. To prep for this talk, uh, Jeff and I uh, were reading some of your blogs that you wrote on uh, on the center's blog site, and and as we kind of jump into this topic, it was just it, something stood out to both of us that you wrote right at the beginning, where you said, "Hey, behind every word that you write about these concepts and terms and theories and studies, uh, you know there are dozens of stories about friends who have experienced gender dysphoria or identity as." transgender or who identify as transgender who have been shamed mocked uh, abused or simply made to feel like subspecies and uh, and you mentioned how you've just been challenged and convicted and loved by uh, those friends who have experienced this lifelong unchosen sometimes debilitating incongruence between their gender identity and their biological sex and and so just as we jump into this topic I, I'd love it if you would just share with with us about how you got kind of into thinking about these topics and maybe even some of the ways that it's personal for you, because we know this is, uh, these can be some, that there's always stories behind all of this. So if you could just share part of that journey, that would be, we just felt like that'd be a great way to start. I appreciate that. And, and yeah, it, uh, has been quite a journey. I would say specifically when it comes to gender, gender dysphoria, transgender related questions. I mean, these, um, fall on the heels of my journey in the, broader sexuality conversations. So, I mean, several years ago when I started researching what the Bible says about homosexuality, I, I part of my quote-unquote research was get, getting to know and listening to um, many different gay people, hmm. um, almost all of them who were raised in the church, whether they're in church or not anymore is another question. But And, you know, the stories were just heart-wrenching. Hmm. You know, in almost every case, uh they had a horrible experience in the church and it wasn't primarily like just simply theological disagreement if there even was theological disagreement but i mean it was just horrific um ways of being treated just i mean i've met so many people that are lgbtq plus whatever that have told me i've never even met a christian that was kind to me Hmm. you know And, and i think there's been the church has played a role in heaping piles of shame and trauma upon LGBT people that they don't even realize it. I mean, a lot of times it's well-intentioned Christians. They think they're doing the right thing, but they just have said things and done things over the years or not said things or not done anything Mm -hmm. that have just compounded piles of pain and trauma in the lives of LGBT people. And all of this is lying beneath the surface of this so-called culture war. You know, when you see like, animosity between the LGBT community and the church, that's just a tiny tip of the iceberg of just such deeper, deeper things that have happened. And once I kind of saw that, you know, you peek below the surface and see the iceberg lying beneath the surface. And it's like, man, this is, as Christians, we got to, at the very least, try to understand that more. So anyway, that's a long background to, um, to, to why the, the, relational aspect of this larger conversation is so important to me. Um, Not only because, you know, as you referenced, you know, I've got many friends who have become, for lack of better terms, collateral damage in the culture war. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But also people that all, if if all the church does is address the sort of, you know, the intellectual aspect of this conversation, they're just, they're chipping away at the tip of the iceberg. They're not really understanding how much relational um, baggage and background and pain is 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 intertwined with the intellectual, you know, arguments or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's so so much more I could say, but I'll I'll stop there because I know you probably have a lot more to talk about. Well, I really appreciate starting that way because on our on our end too, as a church. Uh, you know, we this for us is a very personal issue, not just a categorical issue or a philosophical issue, something like that. 
uh, we're, we're talking about people that we love and care deeply about, um, people in our church who have gender incongruence and, uh, hmm. and people who, um, who in our community that we have yet to reach, you know? And yeah. so th- this is we're, we're, what we're talking today. I think it's just helpful at the front end just to say, we're not talking about them. Yeah. Uh, we're talking yeah. about us. This is, this is our right. church. This is our community and people were called to love. I was at a, a gathering last night. I, 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 Chris, my wife and I did a dinner for all of our youth staff just to thank them. And, and, and I asked them, and this is, you know, from multiple campuses, all this. And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, Hey, how many, you know, how, you know, I told him about the podcast today and I said, so, um, what percentage of our, of all of our youth and in, in all in our youth ministries, kids, uh, would would either be struggling with their own gender identity uh, questions or be really close to people who are. And they laughed at my question and they said, you know, that's a hundred percent. Right. And wow. uh, so this isn't just a, wow. you know, theoretical thing here. We're, we're yeah. talking about our community. We're talking about our church. We're talking about people we all love. So, uh, but that said, um, it, it is helpful to think through categories and yeah. and think through hey what what is gender what is gender uh, dysphoria yeah. or to, you know to to be able to begin to think about what we would call people to and mm-hmm. and how we could help people do well um, so um, maybe I'll just start there it's just a very basic question when we talk about gender and gender incongruence gender dysphoria just with some terms like. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is gender in the first place and how's that different than sex? And that's a simple question. So, yeah, I, I, from what I understand on your blogs, that's a pretty easy one. So you can yeah. get that you know, pretty fast. Well, you know what? It is a the question itself is obviously the most basic question we can ask. It is uh, fascinating how few people um, either answer or ask the question, let alone answer it or answer it with consistency. It is mind blowing. I'm, I'm, I'm reading books by incredibly smart people with multiple PhDs that are experts in this area. And I see them defining gender and sex a certain way and then using it very inconsistently throughout their book. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I, and I, you know, I'll tag where they define these terms and then later on they're using it in whatever way suits their context in that chapter or whatever and it's just it's it's it is the number one i think when, when we think in terms of the um the concepts the concept aspect of this conversation which i think are incredibly important um understanding what we mean by gender is uh is is the greatest hurdle right now so mm-hmm. let's go back to the drawing board um Sex and gender were used more or less synonymously up until about the 1970s, early 1970s. Um, and, and it, you know, from the 70s onward, and in, in academia at least, people uh, were using sex and gender to refer to different aspects of the male, uh, female, or other, if I can say that, uh, experience. Okay, so, you ha- so when people now say sex, they mean male or female that humans are created as a, we are a sexually dimorphic species. This is just science one-on-one. This is not debated. We're sexually dimorphic. We reproduced through, you know, a male impregnating a female and the categories we use to describe that sexual dimorphism is male and female. Uh, Of course, there's a small percentage of people that are born with a, a significant intersex condition whereby they would blend male and female anatomy. And that's a, I think that's a kind of a somewhat of a second, not second, a, a different conversation um, that, that we can have. But even then, it's a blend of male and female. So all humans are either male or female or some a, a small percentage might have a blend of both. But the biological sex is the one thing that everybody agree. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 95%. Most people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do have, I, I, yeah, you search YouTube and you'll see some stuff that's like, that's just on par with like flat earth science, like what they're saying. <laughs> 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 it, it really is. So, I mean, but even some of the radical, I mean, I don't know if anybody knows these names, but like Judy Butler or, 
even like an Ann Foster Sterling, who's, you know, uh, super radical in her views on sex and gender, would still, I don't think, disagree with anything I'm saying. Um, and, and any kind of medical, like you couldn't pass medical school without agreeing with what I'm saying about biological sex. You couldn't pass fifth grade science without agreeing with that. So it's, <laughs> it's not really up for grabs. So what is gender? Okay. Uh, the term gender can be used, I mean, in so many different ways, but primarily gender can be broken down two different meanings. Gender role has to do with the societal expectations for what it means to live out your maleness or femaleness, or the shorthand is masculinity or femininity. What does it mean to be masculine? Well, that's a slightly different question than what it means to be male. Somebody could be in a coma and they're either male or female. But if you ask, are they masculine or feminine? You would have to say, well, I don't know. They're, I'd have to, do they play sports? Do mm -hmm. they wear their hair long or short? Do they wear a dress? You know, like we have these social categories or expectations of what is masculine or feminine. So that has to do with like gender role. Then there's gender identity, which is probably the crux of this entire conversation. Gender identity is one's internal sense of self as either male, female, both or neither. Um, it's one's response, psychological response to their maleness or femaleness. The biggest question in this conversation is when there is incongruence between one's gender identity and their biological sex. And let's just let's just refer, you know, focus on non-intersex persons right now. When there's incongruence, which one is a more significant indicator? of who the person is so for non-intersex persons their biological sex is a fact of reality it's just they either are or they aren't if there's incongruence does their internal sense of self is that a better indicator of who they are or is their biological sex a better indicator of who they are and that's that is the fundamental question and it's um Honestly, it's it's I, most people who are even engaged in this conversation, I don't think have really done a good job even articulating that question, let alone addressing it. But yeah, so that that experience of incongruence when biologically one thing, your experience yeah. of yourself, something else, um, as you've talked to people, um, I'm going to ask you to describe. I, I know it's hard mm -hmm. to describe somebody else's experience, but. Sure. You know, I, I I talked with somebody uh, a few months ago, and I described it as, "Hey, what if what if you know if someone has a, a you know biological sex is one thing, but they feel mm -hmm. like they're the other." And the person said, "Oh no, please don't use that word. Please don't say mm -hmm. feel. It's it's way deeper than right. feel. Yes, you know. So, um, talk about that a little bit. What is that?" experience of, yeah. of someone who identifies as transgender or incongruent or whatever uh, the term. Yeah, that's great. And, and once once we get into this side of the conversation, there's just so much diversity here. Um, so, yeah, there's some people that are completely turned off when especially conservatives who, you know, uh, maybe, maybe heard what I just said five minutes, two minutes ago and are like, well, gosh, how you feel doesn't determine who you are, you know, and it's, it's more than just your feelings or whatever. And it's like, oh my gosh, that can be so flippant and offensive to people who's, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just a feeling, <laughs> yeah. but I, I have heard, uh, I mean, several really brilliant transgender people when they, when they articulate their internal sense of self, they do use language of this is the way I feel. This is the way I feel. Therefore it is who I am. So, um, there, there's just there's so much diversity in how people describe their experience, how they react. But yeah, um, gender dysphoria is the psychological term used to describe this incongruence. It's a term that as of like 2013 has been kind of the main, um, it used to be called gender identity disorder, but that, that, that you know, <laughs> that, that can be taken. As, yeah. Yeah, it, is, it is kind of loaded. Yeah. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but people that... Um, it just comes with both gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder as a description. They both come with ideological assumptions. Mm. But um, So, yeah, gender dysphoria is the term used to describe this incongruence. Now, we have to understand that it is a spectrum. Uh, for some people, from the time, literally, from the time they were three years old, 
have experienced profound, debilitating, life-altering uh, gender dysphoria. I, I've heard of stories where a kid as young as six years old is attempting suicide because mm. the dysphoria is so profound. That would be, you know, strong early onset gender dysphoria where there seems to be some strong biological component here. Um, but then you have all kinds of other uh, types of gender dysphoria all the way to now you have what some scholars are calling rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is kind of an ambiguous term, but it, it, it describes, you know, the 16-year-old the kid who has no prior history of gender dysphoria comes home and announces that they're transgender. And then they, you know, you, you poke around and you find out that 5% of their school population identifies as trans. All their teachers are non-binary. They've been spending eight hours a day on Reddit and YouTube watching transgender videos and stuff. And there does seem to be some kind of social influence here. And we know, we know this is true for especially girls that struggle with, say, bulimia or anorexia or other body dysmorphia that we know for a fact that those, those can be socially influenced so I think a case can be made that there's, for some people, some social influence that is causing people to kind of have this disconnect. Now, those are two very different scenarios. The mm -hmm. three-year-old, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, who isn't being socially influenced, and, and then the 16-year-old who, who, with no prior psychological history of this stuff, you know, is being socially influenced. And then there's everything in between, you know, maybe a both-and or variation and so on. So, but for the person that experiences that 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 let's just say that early onset that from childhood as far as they can remember it, it is i would highly recommend um if, if, as much as it's possible for a christian to, to really sit down and if somebody would would you know um be able to do this somebody with gender dysphoria to have them describe to you what it feels like or you can even read stuff online people talking about it it, it is one of the most um, agonizing, horrific things I can ever imagine, really. I mean, people talk about it almost like a, like some kind of poisonous serum that flows throughout my veins all day, every night, this minute by minute feeling that um, I, I am, I am not my body, that I'm like living in somebody else's body, that I'm just, I just, yeah, it's just it's almost like my body's on fire psychologically mm -hmm. almost, you know, because of this disconnect. Um, so it's just, you cannot listen to those stories and, and then wrestle with the conceptual debates and arguments in this conversation in, in, in kind of a flippant way. But I see people do that quite a bit. They get frustrated at bathroom laws or people saying there's a hundred genders and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, that we, we need, we need to interact with the concepts here and figure this out. But man, we need to do so in a way that's not going to compound the pain and trauma and suffering that people listening on <laughs> um, have that experience severe gender dysphoria. That's a good stake to plant in the ground then, you know, as we continue to talk, because the the first response, once we understand a little bit of it, has to be compassion. Yeah. Right. And then then to start thinking about, well, how do we help people? How do we understand people? How do we uh, encourage people to move forward? Because uh, kind of the way I think about it, right, is be before the fall um, in creation, uh, there was no disequilibrium between biological gender and what I don't know what to call it psychological gender gender experience <laughs> um yeah. after the fall for some most percentage of people it's still the same and then yet for some uh rel you know some percentage of people um it is incongruent um and right. how do we then what do we do and how do we help people and and one question that's a very basic one still is just what is if you're going to say you know is gender biological gender so if somebody comes and you know they let's say they want to be married or something like that um is their gender biological gender or how they experience yeah. themselves um when there's incongruence which 
which gets the most weight. Right. And the, the, yeah, I think it's helpful to use consistently the categories of sex and gender. Um, so, yeah, when, when I there, there's biological sex, again, for let's just say okay. non-intersex persons, they're, 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 they are clearly male or female biologically. Yeah. Um, for some people, their gender, whether it's role or identity, might be incongruent with that. So, yeah, the question is, okay. which one are we when there's incongruence, are we trying to align the body with the mind or the mind with the body is, yeah, is really yeah. a, a simple way of putting it. Um, and that comes to, I mean, honestly, and, and then this just raises questions from theological anthropology. What does it mean to be human? What role does our sexed body play in determining our identity? Um, which direction um, are we moving towards wholeness? Um, is our body, um, the thing that needs to be aligned with the mind or is the mind need to be aligned with the body and how do we know what does it mean to be human? So, um, yeah, from my, and, and yeah, so I've written on this fairly extensively and I'm working on a book on it right now. Um, I, I am more compelled by the arguments that would say that biological sex is the primary determinant of our sexed identity, if, if you want to word it like that. So if, if somebody is male, and that's a biological fact, then if there's if they don't identify as male or feel male or think they're male, or see, even these terms can be, um, if their gender identity is at odds with that, then I'm going to say, um, I, I think it's, uh, you can, there's more evidence for their gender identity being off um, rather than their biological sex. And even that statement right there can get me and my whole family killed if some certain people get it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I mean yeah. or it's kicked off Twitter or, you know. <laughs> how, how do you, um, which is, I'm sorry to interrupt, it's just like, how do you, even when we talk about psychological gender, I mean, is that mostly socially constructed? Like, is that mostly, like, is, like, what does it mean if you separate out, like, the physical aspect of biologically what it means to be male or female? And someone's just saying, "Hey, I, I, I have a a feeling that that doesn't match up with right. what my soul is, or what my brain is, or whatever uh, immaterial part of it." How do we? What I know that's a broader question, but it's like, how do, is is that like based on kind of a cultural construct of what masculinity or femininity is? Like, how how are we to understand what a person's feeling when they're saying there's incongruence there? Um, I, I just so that, yeah. yeah. That is a great question, and you're wording it exactly the way it should be worded. Um, I think it's a both and. Um, gender stereotypes, masculinity and femininity, play, they, they do play a, a, a huge role in this conversation. So if you read um, testimonies from kids with gender dysphoria or, or, or from their parents, you know, they describe their behaviors and statements and you know, experiences of their kids. When it comes to, for instance, biological males, usually evidence for their incongruence oftentimes includes the desire to wear pink clothes. This is just, I mean, I got stats on this. It's, you know, they wanted to wear a dress, they wanted to wear pink, they wanted, you know, bows in their hair, they wanted, you know, and most of these pieces of evidence that this biological male might be a, 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 a girl is how the argument would go nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, it's appealing to gender stereotypes. Hmm. I mean, is wearing a pink little dress and bows in your hair, hair, does that define womanhood? Like that's a, that's just a gender stereotype. In fact, a hundred years ago, I don't know if you know this, but um, pink was the, color for boys and blue was a color for girls i've got statements from magazines from 100 years ago. yeah i got statements from magazines 100 years ago they say you know pink is obviously you know boys should be dressed in pink because pink is a much stronger color it's more masculine and boy huh. and blue is a softer more feminine color so so clearly if a five-year-old wants to a five-year-old male wants to wear pink he he's appealing to a cultural construct. By definition, that is a cultural construct. There's nothing huh. intrinsically biological that males like, you know, blue. That's just that's purely from culture. Um, but especially with the early onset cases, um, I, I, I it's a hard sell to me to say that a three-year-old is simply 
you know, looking at these stereotypes and appealing to stereotypes. Like there does seem to be something deep and biological yeah. and psychological going on here, which which is like, of course there is. Like we know there's all kind. I mean, myriads of different psychological conditions whereby one's um, internal sense of self would be at odds with their body. There, there's another psychological condition called body identity integrity disorder where people identify as being handicapped. And um, they call it the, you know, the transable, meaning there's people that literally go into the doctor and say, I need my left arm cut off because I identify with a one arm. I'm, I am a one arm person. I was born in a body with two arms, but this isn't the real me. Mm. And this is a real, it's a real thing. I mean, it's, there's people that are transracial, like the case of Rachel, Rachel Dolezal, or even though she's fully biologically Caucasian, she fully identifies as being black and um, there's people that are, you know, trans age, people now identifying as an age. I mean, again, I'm not saying these are all the same. I'm saying there there's similarities in the anthropological questions we are asking. When one's internal sense of self is at odds with one's embodied, I'll just say reality, what do we, what do, we do in that case? Um, and I just think, Christianity does have a theology of a it has a very high view of the body. Like, I mean, throughout Scripture, our bodies are not uh, our bodies are a significant aspect of our personal identity. And if there's no evidence within the body that there's something wrong in the body, then we have to at least entertain the possibility that there's something in the mind that is that is off. And again, that is so offensive, even raise that as a possibility in 2018 <laughs> but i think if we believe christian theology is true like i do think we need to have the courage to uh, make that claim even even if it you know gets us kicked off of twitter or whatever <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> but but I, but I do think there's there's a way to go about it that isn't as offensive as as some people that you know do raise all kind of ruckus um you know go about it and I and I I would encourage people, you know, because it's a it's a big statement, you know, when you talk about New Testament theology and the importance of the body in New Testament theology, especially in our in our world where, even in our Christian way of thinking, often misthinking that the soul is it's what's important, that's what's eternal, but the body's a throwaway. Yeah. The body is our earth suit. The body is something right. that's going to disappear. When in fact, the New Testament has a very different view of that where, you know, our our bodies are going to be resurrected. Our bodies are eternal. Our bodies are as much a part of us as our soul is. And they're the same. They're not, you know, distinct. That's a, uh, I I would encourage people to read your blog posts on that um, because it's, it's, I, I really appreciate it. It's very careful work and it's hard to probably summarize and, a two yeah. minute soundbite. <laughs> but at least so. there's some really weird theology if you have that separation kind of thing. I mean, even back in the beginning when right after Jesus mm-hmm. was around and Gnostics were doing some strange things. It's like it just leads to some weird theology that I was grateful that hey, there is yeah. that we can't have this conversation of the immaterial without thinking of the material and they're linked. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then it is, you know, in in Christian academia. Um, this is kind of a no-brainer. Like this, this is something that, especially in the last hundred years or so, we've realized how, you know, quasi-Gnostic or Platonic our Christian theology has been. I mean, you read some old 17th, 18th century hymns, and you know, great hymns, but it's like, man, that mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like being rescued from my body and I'll fly away and all this stuff. And yeah. it's like, no, the immaterial you is not the like the real you and this body is kind of secondary like that's just not uh that doesn't resonate with the way scripture talks about the body or even the soul like the term um the hebrew if you want to get technical the hebrew term nefesh the greek word suke which is the terms translated soul most of the time when these words are used in scripture they include the body like rarely does the bible talk about the immaterial part of you that is completely different, you know, than the body that you are, you know, like they are, you know, um, God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became literally a living soul. Like, and that's his, that's including his body, you know, or even animals are described as as having a nefesh, (laughs) which creates problems for people that, you know, want to say that this soul is this, you know, uh, 
immaterial part of you that's way more important than your body and it's like mm -hmm. well then what do you do with animals having souls you know as the term soul is really just your kind of your aliveness your your, your, your holistic being you know being being expressed so yeah all, all that to say there there's um but but in in for lack of better terms in, in pop christianity or folk christianity there still is some really strong, subtly almost Gnostic or really even Platonic ideas that the invisible, the immaterial, the spiritual is primary and the physical is secondary. But I just don't think the the Bible makes those kind of distinctions. You you were mentioning like where you said, hey, the church can do. I mean, hey, these are some hard subjects. So the church can do a better job of just how we present or talk about it, um, and even just getting practical and maybe a little pastoral here what is what does discipleship look like for mm -hmm. a person that's coming into our community in our church or in our family someone who's experiencing gender incongruence like mm -hmm. from a pastoral perspective what how do we encourage them what is what does that look like now that's uh, that's a huge question um i think it the first thing well there's several things I think first of all, pastors should should get educated on this, and it's. I know that pastors have myriads of issues you guys are working through, and it's like, look, I don't have time to read like a hundred books every week on every single topic that all my people are wrestling with. So, so I, I, I you know, I've been in the ministry, I understand the the difficulty there. Um, I, I do think that the, the gender conversation is pressing enough to warrant pastors and leaders reading two or three books, a few articles, just to get their arms around, you know, what it is we're even talking about. So the number one thing is to realize that, not, you know, you met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. There's a myriad of different expressions and underlying things that would lead to somebody identifying as trans. Gender dysphoria, as I said before, is a spectrum. So you really got to get to know, you got to understand that there's such a wide variation of people who are gender dysphoric, gender incongruent or whatever, or transgender or non-binary or whatever. So the number one thing is understand that, that if somebody says, hey, I'm trans, is your church welcoming? I mean, your next question is, what do you want for lunch? Because I want to sit down and get to know you and understand hmm. you, your story, what you mean by that, you know? Um, and... Uh, yeah, that would be the first step for, for somebody who is experiencing significant gender incongruence, where it is really debilitating. And that 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 becomes a really severe situation. Um, now, th this th that is that is a very small percentage. I mean, it's point zero one four percent who would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, even though anywhere from one to 5% of the population, especially as you get younger, might identify as trans. Hmm. So if somebody identifies as trans, maybe they have significant gender dysphoria, maybe it's mild, maybe it's not. Maybe they don't even know what they mean when they say they're trans. Maybe hmm. they're a girl who doesn't like to wear a dress and somebody told them, well, you must be trans, so they come and say, I'm trans. And there's just there's so much potential confusion in this. But if somebody does have significant gender dysphoria, like that's something that... Um, I mean, there are some practical things that churches and pastors or disciplers can do to, to walk with somebody there. I think breaking down the stereotypes is a big one. Um, not making them feel like they, if they're a female, that they have to fit in this box of cultural femininity. But sometimes churches can reinforce that. Mm -hmm. Like the worst thing that they can do is go to like a women's retreat. <laughs> you know? yeah, right, all, yeah. <laughs> all my friends that struggle with dysphoria, they would never, I mean, they, they see the invitation to a women's retreat with pink flowers and arts and crafts stuff. And it, it triggers them. They're like, I can't even, I don't even know if I could go to this church. If, if I see that PowerPoint slide of like women's retreat and it's all in pink <laughs> and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, half of the women in the Bible wouldn't feel comfortable there. Like, Deborah and Yael driving tent pegs through people's skulls and you know, I mean there's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean there um so I think being aware of how the the church even can reinforce these narrow stereotypes, um and to not do that anymore, it can be a huge step, a huge step. Um but honestly if somebody has what would be clinically diagnosed as gender dysphoria, I would as a church, man, I, I would really try to identify um, some professional 
professional help, preferably a Christian psychologist that uh, doesn't think transition is, you know, the only solution here that they can help walk with that person. Because we are dealing with something that's a really complex, difficult psychological scenario that I don't, man, I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist. Most pastors aren't, and, and they, they might really need some, some help in this area. So if someone comes to us and is choosing or, or trying to just figure out, you know, mm-hmm. what to do when they, you know, their experience of themselves is, is not the accordance with their biological sex, mm-hmm. um, and they want to pursue hormone therapy or present as, you know, present as mm-hmm. the, the, the gender that they believe they are experientially, um, or maybe they were already presenting and say, is that, mm-hmm. is that right? Is that what I should do? Do I align with my body or do I align with the experience of myself and how far should I go if I do that in terms of surgeries and all kinds of yeah. things? Um, I know that may be a question that those counselors that we would encourage people to go to would help them through, but yeah. in general, how would, how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm t- I, I talk a lot about this in, in the book that I'm working on. So maybe, yeah. Um, so yeah, my view is I, I, I um, don't advocate for transitioning like at all. I don't think that's ever an, an, an option for various reasons. I mean, you have the ethical question of whether that's even something God would desire. You have the, if I can say that the ontological question of, on what basis are we trying to align a perfectly healthy body with one's mind? Um, like why, like, I don't, I don't see, I haven't seen a valid case where that is the direction toward new creation that we should be headed, you know? Um, but you also have just a practical question of what are, what are the side effects here? I mean, the suicide rate is about the same for a pre- transitioned trans identified person and a post transition identified person. So if they think transitioning is going to take away depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts and other mental health things that might be going on, then, then I want that person to be very aware of that. There, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. side effects to that have been even been tested with hormones, hormone therapy. Um, there's surgeries that go wrong. There's, a growing number of people who come out regretting transitioning like even if i was an atheist like a god hating bible burning atheist okay mm-hmm. <laughs> i would still be very very hesitant towards transitioning um especially for anybody that's under say 25 i mean our brains aren't even developed fully until we're 25 yeah, like yeah. so i mean it, it is remarkable and I mean that in a negative way that, um, I mean, kids as young as, uh, 12, 13 are having double mastectomy. Like doctors are recommending double mastectomies to a 13 year old girl who thinks she's a boy, um, and pumping them full of hormones that have not been tested long-term. There's been numerous studies. I mean, the, the FDA has received 24,000 reports of adverse health effects from Lupron, the main drug for blocking one's puberty. Cause that's, you know, given puberty blockers to 10, 12 year olds so that they don't go, they delay their puberty and the body doesn't go through the natural process of puberty. And we're seeing all kinds of adverse side effects from that, that are being not talked about. So all that to say, um, uh, if I was walking with somebody, a new convert, a new person at church, or maybe somebody who's been at church for a while, I would really want to sit down. First of all, show them that I, Number one, I care about you as a person. I care about your well-being. And wherever this conversation goes, it's it's built on that foundation. It's because I care about you. Number two, uh, man, I would want to help the person understand the, all the pros and cons of what transitioning might, might include. Because usually they're only going to be fed the pros. You have a strong ideology out there that's transition or die. Either you transition or you're going to kill yourself. And I literally hear people say mm-hmm. that. Like, those are the two options. And for parents especially, it's like, if you're being told by all the medical professionals, if you don't transition your 12-year-old, they're going to kill themselves, what are you going to do as a parent? Like that, if those are the two options. <laughs> but they don't, that's not, that's that's medical malpractice to say that, that that's like the two things that are going to happen to your kid, really. 
Um, so I would want the person to, to just have a lot of well, like balanced information on what it is they're actually considering. And then, man, I would really want to dig into some of the maybe some ideology, ideology commitments that they have. You know, why are you transitioning? Um, why, why do you think that this is God's, you know, direction for you? And um, but all of that has to be done in a massive posture of humility, listening. The second you really come on too strong or think you have it all figured out or you don't demonstrate compassion, then that wall is going to go up. They're going to not listen to you and they're going to go somewhere else. So you just you have to have a humble posture and have this conversation. And you talked about parents in there. Um, maybe let's talk just a little bit more to parents who, who's, you know, 13-year-old or who at whatever age comes and and is experiencing this or is wondering about their gender identity or maybe thinking that, you know, they're trans or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm sure you see parents making all kinds of well-meaning mistakes uh, you've kind of sure. talked about that a little bit already but what would what would what would you say to to a parent that's right in there experiencing that with oh, the God. son or daughter they love and that's a massively growing percentage i mean uh, we've seen a five thousand uh, percent increase in teenage females uh, going to the gender clinic in the UK for because they're questioning their gender. We see a tenfold mm-hmm. increase. I think it's in New Zealand, the United States. I mean, it, it, this is some people have called this an epidemic of teenage females um, with no real prior history of gender dysphoria coming out as trans. Mm-hmm. So um, it, this is a huge. I mean, people listening, there's probably a, a good percentage of parents who are like, "What are you going to say? Because this is me." Yeah. yeah. Um, I would educate yourself um in fact if you're listening in 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 the texas dallas area one of the best counselors in that specific question is sasha ayad a y a d she's down in houston actually okay now she's booked up has a long waiting list because it's such an epidemic but she is i don't even i don't think she's a christian i don't know but her, she specializes in helping parents with this type mm. of situation. Teenage girl with this kind of out of nowhere trans identity that wants to transition because they've been told I'm going to kill myself if I don't transition. And she is phenomenal. I mean, I would go to her website. I would go to her Patreon page and she's got tons of videos, sign up for her newsletter, tons of great information, not just on this area, but how, how as a parent do you walk with your kid? That would be one there's um, several websites that are dedicated to just with i mean months of information on there about this um fourth wave now is one transgender trend is another one parents of rogd kids rapid onset gender dysphoria kids um do i mean well somebody can hit rewind and re-listen to that after (laughs) (laughs) sure um um Oh, there's so much more I could say, but um, practically, honestly, this is one of my number one questions as a parent. How do you, even if, even if when the child becomes an adult, they're out of the house, they're going to make their own decisions. Maybe they're going to transition then. How do you at least delay that process? Because I just, I, I, it's bizarre that we would let. We don't let 14-year-olds drink. We don't let them buy cigarettes. We don't let mm-hmm. them make all kinds of decisions. Why would we let them make life-altering, irreversible, potentially very harmful decisions as a 14-year-old? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many 14-year-old girls have a really good grasp on who they are and are totally, like, have a good view of their body and they understand, you know, like, I got three daughters who are all, you know, 12... 14 and 16. It's like <laughs> dealing with teenage, especially girls and identity. Like you're going to let that kid make life altering decisions. I mean, that is crazy. So um, I would say you still, if you have a child 13 to let's just say teenage child who is adamant that they need to transition, that person has probably already been told by several sources that your parents are the enemy hmm. Parents are transphobic, and if they say anything but, yay, you're, you know, let's transition you, 
then they are transphobic. They hate you. That they, they they don't care about you, and that's a toxic toxic environment. So that's what they're that's what they may be coming at you with. All of this kind of narrative that you are the monster. So you have to diffuse that um, if they're going to listen to you. So if they say, "Hey, I'm 13 years old. I, I need to go in and get my breast cut off and get you know testosterone shots because otherwise I'm going to kill myself." You can't just jump in and say, no way, who told you this? I can't believe, you know, man, you got to sit down and say, just meet them where they're at, show them that you care, diffuse this assumption that, you know, you're the monster, you're the, you're the transphobe that that hates them and everything. Um, And and then, you know, try to speak some reason, you know, into them. And then that's where I think some of these sources that I referenced, uh, might help. Oh, there's also just one more real quick. <laughs> yeah, um, there's there's a uh, YouTube channel called Peak Resilience Project. P I Q U E uh, Resilience Project. It's for young, like 20, 21, 22 year old detransitioned females who went through this whole phase. Wow. They're not Christians. I think two or three are still. I mean, they're lesbians, you know. So, but they speak very frankly, very honestly about why it's just not good for teenagers to be transitioning. And they, they, they speak from experience that, that carries 10 times more weight yeah. than some straight white male pastor saying, no, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> right, so right. I, I would, I would say if, if a parent can say, can you at least watch some of these videos? We'll watch them together. I just give you another perspective that I think I can go a long way at least because deep down, the deep down, the, the child's scared deep down. They're not hundred percent confident in this they're just been they've been fed an ideology i mean to be quite honest Mm -hmm. and and they're kind of scared so to to see other people that have gone through this and would say hey maybe we should rethink this i think could be you know powerful well we'll put some of those uh thanks for sharing those links because we'll put some of those on our website uh where the podcast is hosted so if people want to check that out and i know you kind of in closing i know you um you've been kind of engaging in this conversation and you've even put together a small group material or you're in the process Mm -hmm. of that Uh, if people want to continue the conversation with you uh whether it's through Mm -hmm. some of that material or just interacting with you what what's what's the best way for them to do that yeah, so my website uh, center, well, two of my personal website, PrestonSprinkle.com, but the the one people would want to go to is CenterForFaith.com. And yeah, we've we've uh, put together a five, um, well, uh, it's a part one, part two. So there's a five-week small group curriculum and then another five-week small group curriculum called uh, Grace Truth, what every thoughtful Christian should know about faith, sexuality, and gender, kind of a long subtitle <laughs> but that, that and it, you know it, it comes with like videos there's reading you know like short chapters there's discussion questions and it um great so it's grace truth 1.0 and grace truth 2.0 and that that would give if there's any christian out there that just wants okay now i'm now i got a thousand questions where do i begin we created that for that christian saying i just want the a to z the nuts and bolts of this conversation um, and so everything I've been talking about, we, we discuss, um, we, we get, we get into the gender transgender stuff in, in uh, grace truth 2.0, the second five week, uh, series, but so all the, all of our resource, and we have uh, many other resources that they can check out on the website, but we're not, um, you can't find them on Amazon or anywhere else. We're sticking it to the man. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So, so they have to go to our website, centerforfaith.com. They can go to the store link and see the different resources we have. But then we have tons of blogs and papers and free resources that they can check out too. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time, Preston. And I'm a big fan of yeah. uh, theology and the raw too. So just thanks for, oh, cool. thanks for what you're doing with that. Uh, awesome. uh, I'm a long time listener. What do you say? What's the way you say it? No, first time caller. <laughs> but, uh, but just really appreciate you uh, and your willingness to just jump on with us on this. I know it's a, it's a tough topic, but just thanks for taking the time because yeah. we know you're busy. Sure. My pleasure, man. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll see you around. All right. All right. Take All right. care. Bye-bye. Well, we really want to thank Preston for so generously giving his time uh, to, to speak with us and help us kind of navigate uh, some of these topics. And it's a really fascinating conversation. And Jeff, I'd just love to hear your your takeaways. Was there anything that stood out to you or that you're still mulling on uh, after, we, after we talked with Preston? 
Well, a couple of takeaways. One is I, I, I love Preston's approach in terms of wanting to be thoroughly biblical in a compassionate way, understanding that what God points us to is best for us, right? And he wants us, our lives to go well. But, yeah. But on, and so, so that, that balance of, of being biblically um, oriented, but at the same time very compassionate and personal, realizing this isn't just a philosophical, biblical, theological question. This yeah. is, we're talking about people. And I, I, I really appreciated throughout his, his balance of that. And I think we, we, we have to, you know, be able to move forward that way if we're going to be helpful, because otherwise we're counterproductive. And, and church overall, I think, has been more counterproductive than productive mm. um, on these topics. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, it was almost like every, anytime we read something or even as he talked, it's like he can, you can literally see in his head pictures of people that are popping up, people that have appeared at different talks um, or have commented on his blogs and that he open he, he openly requests that, that people would actually have a conversation, a dialogue. And I think part of that that was really helpful for me was even as he was trying to explain, because you asked him that question of like, hey, what is that experience like? Because, you know, for you and I, that's not our experience. And it's hard when something's not our experience to try to come up with a theological framework for it. And what stood out to me was even that, uh, was it that person that was describing as like poison serum kind of running throughout their yeah, entire body. Yeah, yeah. It's a, like, that's different than just a, a feeling or a choice. Um, that, that stuck with me in a, in a powerful way. Yeah. Another thing I think is worth, worth noting, and I, I really appreciate his willingness to have a perspective. It's yeah. dangerous to do that right on yeah. this issue. And then I, he does it in a very compassionate way, but he has a perspective. For example, when I talked about transitioning, is that something that you'd recommend or yeah. not? And and because of his, and, and I, I also appreciate with Preston, you know, he, he's a New Testament scholar, and so he's coming at it from a new from that perspective, which is unique. So he's thinking about uh, what the New Testament says about anthropology, what it means to be human. Um, about our body and the permanence of our body and and so on and the importance yeah. of it and and so I I that that le- helps him lead to his conclusion he'd say no you know that uh, he would not recommend changing your body uh, to orient around your experience uh, but but to deal with it another way or the other way around perhaps but I think it is worth noting that there are people who come at it who are evangelical Christians Bible submissive Christians who, like Mark Yarhouse, who comes at it from a psychology, he's a psychologist, uh, wrote wrote a book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, which is also very helpful, um, who would not be quite as stark as that. He yeah. would say, hey, generally, uh, I wouldn't recommend something as aggressive as transitioning. His thing is the least invasive way possible. Choose that. But if there's no other way, uh, the... Um, then there are scenarios where he would he would say, you know, he would be okay with it. Yeah. Um, and but it's just coming at it from a a different perspective. Even though mostly um, they ninety five percent they would agree. I just think it's worth noting yeah. that there's there's a variety of perspectives out there. It's a, it's kind of like the, this conversation is so new for a lot of us that I think it's like there's not. I think Preston alluded to this somewhere that there's not like a it's not like a script to follow or even an, I mean, and it's even changing so fast with, um, you know, there's percentages of people who would say they identify in the LGBTQ community and even percentage of, of those that would be T. And yet, in a sense, those numbers are skyrocketing or going up. I don't know if skyrocketing is the right word, but it's they're going up. And, and some of that's like, is that because it's more societally okay or is it? Is it other things that this is just a conversation that continues to shift that's kind of hard to understand and and so I do think that's helpful to know that hey, there's people that love Jesus that love the Bible and are trying to think about this well who's who don't who maybe come at it in slightly different ways because there's there's not necessarily a a path forward to know how to do all that stuff, yeah, and I think we need to realize we're all we're all breaking new ground, yeah you know we're all pioneers in this, which should give us some humility, yeah. And and I appreciate. I think Preston has that, you know. And yet he also has. A, a, he's been willing to dive in and think really deeply as an advanced scout um, for 
uh, for the rest of us uh, to learn from. But, you know, even as a church, um, I, I feel that way because yeah. we're we're right in the front lines of, of just trying to figure this out because we're ministering to people who are experiencing gender incongruence themselves or helping their children or friends or whatever. And so um, I believe God will help us. You know, we're not on our own, but it demands really good thinking. Yeah. And uh, and a, well, a humble but intentional, yeah. you know, approach. Yeah. Well, this probably won't be the last conversation we have on it, and I hope it's not the last time we have you on the podcast. We'll we'll try to, you know, another time we have a softball one like this, yeah, we'll, thank we'll you. try to pull you in, you know, on that. And we certainly want to thank Preston for giving us his time, and uh, and he has a great podcast of his own that I listen to, um, it's podcast, uh, it's Theology in the Raw, which he kind of, if you're a guy that, or girl or whoever, that likes to get into kind of, hey, what would be a theological uh, answer to this question? He kind of tends to do that, where he just answers people's questions. It's pretty interesting. Or you can follow him on Twitter at uh, Preston Sprinkle uh, or his website, uh, PrestonSprinkle.com. also want to thank the Center for Church Renewal just for letting us use their uh, sound recording uh, space. That's, they do such a generous job with that. And, and thank you for listening to uh, this and engaging thoughtfully in topics like this. Uh, we hope this has been helpful. And uh, check us out again as we uh, keep doing the Page 2 podcast and kind of diving behind the headlines and Sunday morning sermons to engage in issues of faith, culture, and life.